0: You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online, and my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. Welcome to the show. The interview subject I have coming up for you is Tim Aldridge from Melbourne's most excellent extreme metal band, probably of all time, in my humble opinion. Well, them and Destroyer 666, Abramelin. Now, the reason for the chat is to talk up Abramelin's brand-new studio album. It's a full album, nine or ten tracks, Never Enough Snuff. It certainly is one of the albums of the year thus far. It's probably the best straight-up Australian death metal album in the last probably decade or so. Not that I've heard every single Australian death metal album released in the last decade, but of the ones that I've heard, I must say this takes the cake. So here he is, Tim Aldridge from Melbourne's extreme metal outfit, Abramelin. Hello, mate. G'day, mate. How are you going? I'm very good. Let me turn off this bloody noisy heater up here above me. it's good to to chat to you mate. How, yeah. how cold is it? Are you in Melbourne or Sydney? Melbourne, yeah. What it is it about? Bloody cold at the moment. <laughs> what is it about 7 degrees or 6 degrees or something like that down there yeah, at the moment. Um, yeah, maybe even 5. I don't know how you lot do it. I have got to tell you. I mean it gets below seriously here, it gets below 15 degrees. It, it honestly feels like you're 7 degrees. Does that make sense? Like we're not a climate. Oh, yeah, to sure. Yeah. You know. Yeah, um, it's. Uh, I was. Yeah. The, the weather just fucks with us up here, mate. Because it's during that you you wake up and it's quite cold, like ten degrees or what have you. Like you know, I mean, you expect it to be that cold some mornings, like in the dead of winter. Yeah. But during the middle of the day, it gets to twenty five degrees. So if you put a jumper on, you're going to lose it by about ten a.m. Nine thirty a.m. As it is.
1: You still hold the humidity around winter. Like is it still. I mean, like you've been used to it. You wouldn't probably notice, I suppose. Um,
0: it's a fair question, and you're probably on point with your yeah. comments, because, look, I might be on the Gold Coast, but it doesn't really – once you hit about Bundy, shit gets real. There's no winter north of Bundy. It's just yeah. we're right on that border, you know, the um, uh, Capricorn, the uh, tropical yeah. Capricorn there. And, mate, once you get into Mackay, mate, it's all over. I mean, it just doesn't change at all. <laughs>
1: yeah. You know Long reach stays around about 40 degrees all year round too, doesn't it, when you get out there? Well, that's <laughs> – I was just—it's funny you mentioned Longreach.
0: Actually, I've, I've, I'm just about to graduate uni, and I was uh, going to go for a rollout out that way. Yeah. Uh, with uh, with the paper out there, the News Limited paper out there to become a sub editor out there. Uh, mm. I don't know whether I could lift my, you, you know, ask the family to move from Northern Gold Coast, which is very pleasant, to the exactly. outback. Nice cool breeze in the Goldie. You don't get that horrible wet heat, you know. Spot on. No, you're on point. Um, yeah, I mean, I love I love living in Queensland, but um, yeah, the heat gets... Seven months or eight months of just continuous heat does get to you after a period of time, but then I look at what you guys had to bloody deal with down there. Like, how you guys do... Sh- I'm a muso too, right? Yeah. I'm used to loading out at like three and four in the morning. I'd play covers music, so Kylie and Olivia Newton-John and all that stuff. But, But like, I'm still loading out in the morning and it gets pretty
1: cold, but you guys must load out and you just see the steam coming off you. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's like you finish a show, no matter what you do, you're always sweating after it anyway. And, yeah, you get out the freezing cold, your nipples hit the bloody pavement before the rest of you does, you know. You know it's insane. It's not fun. <laughs> and, uh, I often, I've done a lot of,
0: like, diving into the history of Australian cities. Like, why are they there? And, of course, Melbourne is, is all gold money originally. <laughs> That's why it became so powerful and was able to sort of usurp Sydney with the um, placement of Canberra, yeah, yeah. you know, whereas Sydney was seen as the old establishment. Melbourne was seen as the young, you know, the real, the real powerhouse of the Australian economy at the time because of the gold, and there wasn't mining, of course, at the time. It was all that, but it's fascinating yeah. to me that we've got these, these. Yeah, you know, Brisbane is effectively the northern port of Sydney. Melbourne's yeah. independent, and every and Perth is really just a mining outpost. Adelaide is just where the beatniks lived, and Darwin yeah. effectively doesn't exist. <laughs>
1: a lot of souls in the middle.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, da- see, Darwin these days has got less than two hundred
1: thousand people in it. It's incredible. It's yeah. basically a town. It's one place I've never been. Never been up the Northern Territory. Never been up to Darwin. Uh, it's, all over Australia, yeah, hundred times, but yeah, never up there. It's beautiful, but it's hot as shit.
0: Like, yeah. I mean, it's it's ridiculous actually up there. I mean, I I used to work for Telstra, so I used to travel up and down the coast of Queensland between here and Cairns. Yeah. And um, the irony is of my time in Cairns, I spent eight or nine months flying in and flying out just within the role, and. Um, it was some of the coldest I'd ever been because you're constantly in air conditioning because it's like 40 degrees outside, yeah. 38 degrees, and the humidity's at 90%. No, Is nobody that, can get anything done. Yeah, no, nah, no. Nah. you know? horrible. It's horrible. Uh, it's a tough place to try to do any business, mate. But, uh, mate, this wide brown land of ours isn't going to change for us.
1: No, exactly. <laughs> you know? we're, we're lucky we sort of – all our major cities are all on the coast, you know. We get we get a little bit of sea breeze all the way around, you know. Well, I caught up. I'm mates with Kurt from Metal Church, and
0: he asked me that. He says, "Why the hell haven't you got any cities outside of where you are?" I said, "Look, I said it, literally the whole country trying to kill you. The mm. environment is trying to kill you outside of where we have set up cities. It's just impossible. Like you know, something something like the soil in some parts of Australia before you hit bedrock goes down to sixty centimeters only. You just really? can't. Yeah, the US is different. It's where yeah. the oldest landmass above Earth. You're right above, above sea level. Sorry. Yeah." yeah. Um, and it's just we've just been eroded away. So there's just nothing here. I don't even know how we've had a pastoralist industry and you know farming. Farming is just weird because it's all European farming techniques in
1: a country that yeah. can't really support it. Yeah, you know, so. <laughs> seem to all be in the wrong spot too. <laughs> you know, it rains everywhere where there's no catchment, so it's bloody crazy.
0: Oh, it is, mate. Yeah, they need to get. It's not the Bradfield. the Bradfield scheme? If you've been reading about that, you know, up no. here it's a big deal. But yeah basically to capture all of that water that you're exactly talking about in a series of dams and rivers and then redistribute that throughout the rest of Australia. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of, cause there's an enormous volume of water that falls that in, in, in sort of uh, atherton table lens that just goes nowhere, yeah. goes back yeah. out to the ocean. Yeah. Um, you've got to capture it all somehow. You know, somehow it's gotta be done. But uh mate, we are mere musicians and uh and, and are... participants in life, not dickhead politicians. <laughs> 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 you know. Mate, I, I gotta say, I uh, I didn't expect to hear from you guys ever again. Yeah. Because 'Cause I'm forty two, so of course I remember the day back in the day. Yeah. And you guys um certainly if memory serves correct, you guys were about you guys and Armored Angel were the were the two that I thought would break outside of Australia. Yeah, cheers. And achieve success, particularly in Europe. I thought um, you got Armored Angel. I thought maybe you were more European. You guys are a bit more successful with the the American side of things. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, I liken your sound in a recent review. I'm just trying to find where where, where I wrote it. But uh, what did I say? Uh, their deer side meets carcass at the house of Cannibal Corpse brand of death metal. Yeah,
1: well, that's,
0: that sort of sums it up in a way. Yeah, certainly a lot <laughs> of influences there. Yeah. But your your guitar playing, I must be, I must say as well. I think, and I'm not just pissing in your pocket here. I think you're probably the most overlooked guitarist in the Australian heavy metal industry by by some measure.
1: Well, because
0: thanks, I had the EPs, I remember the EPs well, and I remember you playing and thinking, shit, you're you're basically you know like a Jack Owens style, you know the bolt, yeah. you know bolt on point rithia, jig, jig 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 jig. You yeah, had yeah. that
1: style down pat, you know. Yeah. That's um, good. On and he's an absolute legend too. And again, he's he's overlooked, I reckon, as well these days.
0: Well, he is. Yeah. Look, I can't, I've reached out to Jack for a conversation, but he's just he's ignored the you know the Facebook message or the message yeah. on Twitter or what have you. Because um, I think you knew Ralph Santola as well. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, he was a really close friend. Yeah. Is that right? So I I wasn't good mates with him like what you were, but I knew him. Yeah, yeah. and I was so I was I was devastated to be honest with you when oh, yeah. he passed away. Dude, I think of him every day.
1: Literally, still every day, I really miss miss him a lot. Yeah. How How did you guys develop your friendship? Um, I first I was in um I was playing in the Berserker, and um, it was when he was playing in an Obituary, and we supported them on a North American tour. Um, in two thousand and nine, it was the first time I met Ralph, mm. and straight away we just we just hit it off, and um, we ended up sort of just basically being like tour buddies and hanging out the whole time, and mm. then. Um, I didn't see him for a while, but we became really close Facebook friends after that. We were chatting almost on a daily basis. And then I didn't even realise that he was playing in Deerside. And um, I, was, I was playing in the Amenta in 2011. We did a European tour supporting Deerside.
0: Hmm.
1: And when the tour bus turned up to pick us up from our hotel, i get bloody jumped on and i turn around it's Ralph. I didn't <laughs> even realise he was in the band. So I was lucky enough, again, we were pretty much bunk mates. He was sleeping opposite me. So we end up, if we weren't talking all night or hanging out all night at the shows, we end up talking in our sleep to each other all night and it just, uh, yeah, solidified the friendship again. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, I had two conversations with him, one of which was published on my podcast series, but we 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 a bit like you, we'd exchange messages and emails and stuff and I was actually at the genesis of talking about bringing him out here yeah. to do guitar clinics because I think that's something that's really overlooked. We get the bands coming out which is bloody expensive, and there's a handful of guys like Dice who have the expertise to do it successfully. But, yeah. you know, you've seen there's been a few festivals lately, like that Glam Festival, I can't remember the name of it, Adult Oriented Rock Festival or what have you, that fell over. You know, it's it's a dark art is what I'm saying, hard to do. So I thought, I don't think I want to do that, but I want to bring out guys like Ralph, guys yeah. like uh, Steve DiGiorgio. Yeah, definitely, yeah. To, to put on these clinics to show their yeah. immaculate technique to people, you know. And uh, Ralph was keen, but... We know what happened, unfortunately. And yep. uh, it's, I think we lost a giant. I think, I think my, my view on Ralph is pretty clear. And I've said it mi- many times on the podcast. I think he recast the die of death metal guitar playing with his performance on Stench of Redemption.
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Those was, guitar was, solos. Yeah. It was really tragic that time. Like, um, just before he passed, um, he had planned to come out to Australia, even just for a holiday. And he was going to spend a week or so with me. And, um, it just never Absolutely. eventuated. His health sort of got deteriorated. He was having a lot of issues. And then um, out of nowhere, he's gone, you know. Yeah. It was incredible. I, I spoke to Bill Hudson
0: about it. You know, Bill's his other good mate who was – Bill shared with me that he was in the room when he passed. Yeah. Um, and I also spoke to the night that he passed. I can't help but think that we're all sort of drawn together sometimes when someone someone is, you know, connected to the cosmos as Ralph
1: yeah. truly is still. Um, yeah, I spoke he's- to – Just before he went into hospital. Yeah. um, It was a bit of a cryptic one. It was a bit weird. But um, I didn't think that would be the last time I'd heard from him. And then he was basically, he was in the hospital and he was in a coma within 24 hours. Hmm. It was just just insane. And he thought he he was bitten by a spider. He thought he had a brown recluse bite. And he thought that's that's what was causing his sickness. Yeah, yeah, that's weird. It's weird thinking back. Yeah, it's it's odd because that that night
0: that he was in hospital in the coma, I spoke to Bjorn from uh, you know Speed from Soilwork and flight Orchestra, yeah. and it was a difficult conversation. Man, I, was, I I wouldn't say I know Speed. I mean, I've spoken to him five or six times for the podcast and interviews in general, but he's a damn good guy too. Yeah. But a bit like you, I think he was mates with him and Bill, you know. And it was just so strange that within this very small period of time, I got to chat to Bill about him. Then yeah. I got to and the, and the night he passed away, or the the night before the morning he passed away, I was speaking to Bjorn about him. As well. Yeah. So it was like, in some ways, I felt like we were being prepared for the fact that he wasn't going to be around. Yeah. And he's left a massive hole, mate, because he's the sort of guy that he's playing. I just, I, I still listen to it now and I don't understand where he get the inspiration from to do what he was yeah. doing. He
1: was an absolute massive music fan and a massive brain. He would study the, study classical music and just to find out, just, just to try and sort of work out how, what – Put, what's, I don't even know the words for it. You know, I'm, I'm a hack of a guitarist compared to someone like Ralph. <laughs> um, he would just f- find all these different angles to look at it and different ways to study it, and he would study the most minute details on different um, composers' thoughts and ideas and how they put stuff together, and he would take influence from that. And it's, it's something that my brain, honestly, I just can't do that. Mm. You, you, tell me, who wrote
0: the solo at, at about 2.16, the 2.16-minute 216, uh, mark of Play With Your Prey? Oh, that's mate. Yeah, that's mate. You can do it. This is what I'm talking <laughs> about with you. You're underselling yourself because I listened to that, and there are so many killer leads and great solos. And and being a muso, I just get right into that stuff, yeah. you know. And there's so much ear candy on this. And when I listened to that one there, I was like, holy shit, this guy can play. Oh, well, really? Play. You. That's an incredible. Yeah. Re, uh, the Anwar from Metal Obsession will publish my review, but I do make a point of highlighting that one there. Thank you. Because, because you know, and then at the end, when you do that Bill Steer thing at 408, the uh, you know, like you do, you know, that just sort of you're holding onto the note in the new wave of British heavy metal style. Yeah, you know, yeah. The outro a bit. That stuff, yeah. mate, that stuff is like your signature.
1: Yeah. I'm old school, man. Like, I mean, I absolutely love Iron Maiden. Um, guitar harmonies like Thin Lizzy and stuff, you know. It's, it's still... Um, when I'm writing death metal, that stuff still comes into my head and it still influences me to sort of take it to a more melodic place rather than try and just be brutal all the time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's man, it's, it's great stuff. But, I mean, the thing is, is that the brutality too. I mean, the riff that starts at about 136 in The Peeler. Yeah. Um, but, Jesus, man, I mean, that's come from somewhere else, distant. You know, that's, that's more the than angel.
1: Wilcock. He, he, he submitted one song for the album, and my God, it is a killer. And that, the peeler is all Matt. You know, I mean, I, I do the second lead break on that album. Mm. And the pressure I was under to try and do something that could fit with something that he wrote, because, I mean, I, I put him in the most highest regard as one of the best guitarists I've ever, ever heard, let alone played with. And, um, yeah, that, that's all down to him. That's his his old school influence as well in there, definitely. So he was he was in Acre Cocker, is that correct? Mm.
0: So,
1: how, how did you guys connect? Well, when Matt was a young lad, um, when we released our previous album before this latest one, Dead Speak was in two thousand, and um, at that time when we recorded the album, it was just myself and our singer Simon, <laughs> and so we thought we got to tour the album. We need to get a band together, so we sort of put out some. Um, we we need to do an audition for another guitarist. Mm. And we were put on onto Matt Wilcock by uh, an old friend, Theron. And um, I remember going to the rehearsal room the night that Matt was auditioning. And I walked in there and he was shredding like an absolute monster. Mm. And he, I think he was 20 years old at the time, maybe 20 or 21. And I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, I've got to get my chops up. This guy is just going sh- to slay <laughs> me. <laughs> but from, from seeing him for the first five minutes, seeing his playing, I knew he was the guy, and uh, he joined us yeah. for that tour then.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I like this, the thinking because I think if you got bored in a lesser guitarist, you dominate them too much. And and I say yeah. that the nicest way because you can shred. There's no doubt, mate. You're fucking right up there. But if you bring in somebody who's a bit more of a uh, you know shrinking violet, it would it would actually hurt the potential of the band and therefore the album.
1: Yeah. Well, I've never really thought of myself as a lead guitarist. I've I've always thought of myself as and and look to people. That are amazing rhythm guitarists, like like Scott Ian from Anthrax, for instance, or sure. even Dave Carlo from Razor. These guys who are just the tightest players and the most awesome pickers, and and that's and even like James Hetfield early on for influences. Just these these guys. It was it was all about the rhythms, and for me, it's more about trying to get right the songs rather than trying to show off on all your little weird techniques that you can do. I mean, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love shredders. Melmstein is one of he's an absolute god to me. Hmm. but it's not something that really that I've ever thought of myself as,
0: you know? That's interesting because you can do it. I mean, it's there and look, I I understand where you're coming from though. And I like your philosophy because what, what then, what what happens is a song like um, pleasures. Okay. So to me, that's the last song on the album, I think, or second last song on the album. Last song. Yeah. Bonus track, really. Okay. So to me, the most satisfying moment of the album is actually in that song. Because yeah. the change in pace and the change in riff, it's about three at about the 333 mark, mate. That's probably the, the riff of the year thus far. And I, I do like to dive into that much detail. When yeah. I heard that, man, I don't headbang much these days, but man, I was right into it. I think I was doing something in the kitchen, got my ear pods in, yeah. looking after the kids as a, you know, tendu. And, uh, um, mate, it just melted my face right off. It was just oh. fucking. Boom, right there. And and I, I suppose there was a bit of a, a patriotic surge within me to hear that there's an Aussie band that's that's doing it. Yeah. You know, You know. so what was, so why do, I mean, you know, why do it now? Because you have had a look. you know, when I say success, as much success as you could probably ever hope for playing mm. extreme metal as an Australian guitarist. Yeah. But a Bremelin is a name that is, it's a storied name really, isn't it? It's like an
1: iconic name within a, Australian extreme metal circles. So... Were you, were were you, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on the inside, so to me, it's just my band. It's just what I write, and it's just sort of, um, yeah, I've, I mean, I've played in other bands over the years, but it's always a, everything I've done in the other bands, I wish I was doing that with a Bremlin. You know, I want my songs out there, and I want to be overseas touring with my band, but, um, yeah, it just hasn't happened yet. That's the only thing. We were, we were stuck in Australia in the 90s because um, the world was a much bigger place in the 90s, the pre-internet. You know, expensive flights, um, lower paying jobs, all that sort of stuff, you know. Youth, I suppose, and naivety and and all those things combined made it virtually impossible for us to uh, even think about getting overseas. Mm. Well, I think
0: i I got to say it's too early yet to say this, but this might be your strongest release. And you know why I say that? Because Mm. you haven't tried to sound like it's from 1998 or something. Yeah, it actually sounds modern, which i which I, I got to tell you, I truly appreciate it because I, I get that bands come out these days and they've had some hiatus and they release an album, which sounds like it came out years and years ago, what have you. Um, what's his name? Yeah. Um, Jeff did something similar with Possessed. He came out with a modern sounding death metal album. Yeah. He didn't come out with an album that sounded like Larry LaLonde was still on it, for example. Yeah, which yeah. which I probably would have liked, but yeah. I don't think it all goes well for the band moving forward. I think you've got to remain relevant to the current audience and the, the it's not about trends at all. It's just about remaining <clears> it's, it's just about uh, endearing
1: yourself to the current metal audience, you know. So yeah. you can't um, keep writing the same album because once you've once you've written one album, that's that's its point in history. You've got to progress, or you've got to move forward. I think, you know, mm. otherwise you're just going to stay where you were from the last album. You've just if you keep releasing the same album, which a lot of bands do do, you know, yeah. a lot of big bands do do that. And to me, it just it makes it very easy to lose interest.
0: Yeah, I, I agree completely. Yeah, it's um when I first started doing this music journalism pursuit about three years ago or so, I couldn't believe how many releases there were out there every day that come out. Yeah. And eventually you get attuned to it and you sort of find your... You, you get your sea legs. You work with me when I say that. You get your legs yeah. in the industry. So you learn to sort of listen for certain things. And I just find with the album, Never Enough Snuff... So obviously I'm recording this for my podcast series. So for the listener, the album's called Never Enough Snuff. But it's it's probably the death metal release of the last few years. Um, you know, it's it could potentially... like. It's certainly, and I'm not just saying that from an Australian release. I'm talking that from an international release as well, because some of them have really been lackluster lately. Like Trey, who I think is a god, yeah. but what he did with
1: Kingdoms Sustained, I didn't think was good enough at all. Agreed, agreed. He's an absolute hero. He's a bit of a he's a, he's a strange guy. Yeah. Met him on occasions, but um, yeah, he's a hard nut to crack. But I think, I mean, then again, look, how many albums have they done? How many amazing riffs has come out of that guy? Can you keep, I don't think you can keep it up forever, you know. You're going to have your moments of we're going to lack a bit of inspiration. You'll probably come back with something that will just tear tear our guts out, you know. But, yeah, that last album, the last couple of albums, just haven't been up there for what I'd expect from him, yeah.
0: I spoke I spoke to David about Elude Divinum Vinom Insaneness, and, and I spoke to, of all people, I reached out to Trey's mum. I yep. spoke to her for the podcast. She's a lovely lady, Janelle. You know, she, she did reveal something to me that I don't think was actually in the public domain, but she was happy for it to be out there. But Trey's got Asperger's. Oh, wow. That's what it that, is. That
1: makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah, that, that makes, makes a lot of sense to why he can be so withdrawn sometimes, yeah. Mm.
0: That's what it is. And um, I'd love to interview him, but he, he just, you know, he's got radio silence lately. And I kind of don't blame him. I think people, I wouldn't say they'd pick on him, but they're focusing on the wrong things. And earlier on in the year, he was, did you see he was done for a DUI?
1: No, no, I didn't see
0: that. Yeah, he was actually in a. He was, his mug shot was there and everything. It was quite, some ways, it's quite confronting to see it because I've never seen him in that light. Normally, his face is his hair's covering his face, yeah. and he just looked like a regular fifty-five-year-old bloke. Yeah, <laughs> with his hair pulled back, <laughs> he's human after all. You know? Yeah. Um, but um, look, you know, with the album, with the potential that it has to to truly move the needle for you guys, can you tour? Can you go overseas and take it abroad?
1: yeah definitely definitely. um obviously it all comes down to finances and all that sort of stuff and um uh, a lot of the guys in the band have got um their own businesses um very um yeah it's it's sort of um it's it wouldn't be long to us. I think we might be able to do like three three weeks maybe at a time mm-hmm. here and there, but it's definitely we've got the potential to get out there and literally do a few weeks at a time every single day, go and push the album and then come back home get back to our jobs, (laughs) you know, and and then wait another six months, do it again kind of thing. Yeah, it's not something we could really – everyone's got families, you can't really do everything and just, you know, tour like we're in our 20s again. I mean, most most of us – oh, sorry, Simon, Rob and I, we're pretty much hitting 50. Um, Matt and Dave, uh, you know, late 30s, early 40s. Um, It's – we're a bit late, I suppose, <laughs> in, in that respect. You know, a lot of other stuffs happened with our lives in the meantime. Oh, but it's a
0: tough—it's a tough business, and then you're playing extreme metal on top of it. And when you guys came out with doing what you were doing, it basically went away from 1997 to about 2002 or 2003 or thereabouts. I mean, people yeah. just don't, especially the young fan. I talked a lot about this in the podcast that. Being in my forties, of course, I remember the rise of Metallica, the Black Album, yeah. Megadeth. I remember Iron Maiden when they've, you know, was
1: the fall of Metallica. I think. <laughs> what, what's that? Sorry, black album. black album was the fall of Metallica, in my opinion. I mean, I they can't stand many, it, yeah. mainstream, you know. I mean, but but as, as far as songs went, I don't think they've ever done anything really good since like the eighties, really. Oh, I'm with you, hundred percent. I think their last
0: decent album, like when I say their last godly album, was Master of Puppets. They had they had two godly albums, which they built their entire career off the back of, yeah, Yeah. and and effectively one person, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, oh, look, Master of Puppets is all time. I mean, I remember how I felt about it as a 16-year-old. It never left yeah. my – it was between that, Faith No More's Angel Dust and Death. There's a few other albums there, but, I mean, there are albums that just didn't leave. They just never went back in their case, the jewel case. They were just yeah. upside down so they wouldn't get scratched, and i just r- rotate them, you
1: yeah. know. But, uh, but yeah, I, That, that you takes know. you back, you know, the nostalgia. When you hear those things, you feel like you're 16 again, you know. That's what I love about those albums, and I love about all that AU stuff, you know. I do want to feel like a kid. I'm, I might be nearly fifty, but I still feel like I'm 16 in the head.
0: Yeah, you know, and and
1: music keeps me there. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm
0: I'm with you. I look just just talking about Metallica quickly again. I just I just wish bloody Lars would step out of the band and
1: let Chris Adler yeah. drum or something because he can't drum for shit. No, no, I mean I, I don't know how he stayed there. Obviously, he's got some. Um, I mean, he's he's it's his band, you know. It's him and yeah. James really, obviously. Yeah. But um, my God, imagine what could what could happen if there as another drummer in that band. It would just be insane, what they could come up with. Like that that hardwired to self-destruct,
0: I was pretty complimentary toward it when I probably shouldn't have been when I did the review for it, back in for, for Stevo and Hot Metal. It's a obviously- good riff, is it?
1: You know, mate, but God, they go on for a while, don't they? <sighs> Lars' drumming is so loud. Oh, he's, he's drumming his bloody shit house on. Mm. But I think that the riffs, there's songs where they repeat the same... Sort of format and section of riffs like eight times. Once you hear it the third or fourth time in a song, it doesn't need to be repeated again. Move on. Yeah. But you, (laughs) so you,
0: you work with probably, I mean, alongside Pete Sandoval, Tim Young, I mean, Dave's up there. Dave Haley, for the listener, is up there. Cycroptic and you guys, you know, but you work alongside one of the greatest extreme metal drummers around today, you know. You can talk with some experience about this. What do you think goes through the heads of the guys in Metallica when they're writing the shit that they write these days and go, that's it, they're exactly to the point that you just raised there about the riffs going on for too long and the arrangements being spread out over eight and nine minutes when it really only needs to be done at three and a half minutes and also to the way Lars's drums are mixed higher
1: than James's vocal. Yeah. It's like, what well, the hell's going on? Obviously, the, for, for a start, they're, they're probably using the wrong producers and they're probably listening to the, these idiots telling them what to do. I think they've had their hands held for so long that I think they just let someone else take over. Because hmm. I don't know, people who play and write the music, they wouldn't let it come out. Like, I can't believe they'd let it come out the way that Metallica let their songs come out.
0: Agreed. Yeah, Agreed. But, that's, but listening to your stuff, and I can hear it's, it's, it's tens of thousands of hours potentially of experience that goes into crafting what you guys have done here. So when you guys have got, you got Dave, what do you do? Do you just get into a rehearsal room, look at Dave and just let him do his thing? Or do you issue instructions in the way that a lot of drummers need
1: to be issued instructions to fit the riffs that you've put together? Well, Dave certainly doesn't need any instruction. I mean, he is is such a wealth of knowledge and ideas. Um, Basically, I write my songs to click tracks in this current environment, sort of with technology and that I've sort of adapted to doing it that way. Hmm. And... And I send them to Dave and get him him in his head. And then when it comes to writing them, usually Dave and I will spend time together by ourselves. Dave will come back to me with um, his ideas on drum patterns, drum ideas, and if something sits a bit weird with me, I'll say, hang on, I'm not sure about that. Um, If I've got any certain ideas where I I want a particular kind of beat with a riff, I'll let him know that. But usually – On this album, it's been a bit 50-50 because he's come up with some stuff that I would never have thought of. And even when I first heard it when we were sort of jamming the tracks out together, I was a bit put off by it because he put a lot more into it than I would have imagined. Hmm. And then over, I'd I'd record the rehearsal, listen back to it on my phone later and sort of just, okay, just let go how I thought about it originally and try and accept it as a new song. And and Dave would bring it to a level where it wouldn't never have been without Dave. You know, like he gets as much writing credit. I think with turning these songs the way they are from me putting the riffs down. With his his drums, change the feel of everything. You know, and I, I just, okay. yeah, I, I think he's a massive, massive um, contributor to the way these songs have come out. Finally.
0: So I like that. So it's the way it's the way. That, so it's the accents and the signature within his own drumming technique that have changed the songs, not necessarily the yeah. arrangements.
1: Definitely, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, if you really pull apart a lot of the songs, he literally accents every um, note point pretty much yeah. on so many riffs, just with little um, bell hits mid-ride blast and stuff like that. And it's like, I've never heard other drummers really do that before. And he just makes he makes the riffs stand out way bigger than they would if it was just flat-out blasting over the top of it, yes, you know?
0: I agree. Yeah. He's, a,
1: he's a magician with that stuff. Was that his idea or your
0: idea for the for the? I call it the over the mountain drum intro to Never Enough Snuff.
1: Yeah, no, that's all him, man. That's all him. Oh, actually, no, sorry. <laughs> the actual intro, the role yeah. Intro, yeah, that was that was that was a thought in my head. That's cool because that's yeah. something that Lee Fair Kerslake.
0: Well, that's yeah. that's very Lee Kerslake. Or, or see, so the god of drumming for me is Cosy Powell. Yeah, yeah. he's because he's the original guy, right? He was the he was still playing with the you know I call them you know the um, bloody. Um, Oh, God. chopsticks. I call them <laughs> chopsticks. You know, he holds them like that sort of thing. Oh, but yeah. he's, he's, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's hitting it as hard as yeah. what a normal person would be, a normal drummer would be doing. But he's he's one of those drummers who I would even venture to suggest that Dave is one of
1: those drummers that when you hear his drumming and you don't know it's him, you can still pick it's him. Definitely, yeah. It's it's like you hear the same thing. You hear the finger tones in certain guitarists. You hear their leads or you hear their riffs, and mm. you can't mimic the tone in someone's fingers—you can get close, but you can't quite get it—and that really stands out a lot. And that definitely stands out in his drumming for sure.
0: What, what about the, the from a musical side of things, the relationship with Rob? Do you just give him the demo, you know, the, in the cloud, and say, "Learn this bit"? Or how does it work with him?
1: Oh, Rob—he's just look. Rob—Rob's a guy who I've known since I was 15 years old. Rob and I played in our first band together called Conqueror in the 80s. We were a thr- it was a thrash band. Basically, we loved Creator and we just, I think the first show we ever did, we did six, cre- six Creator covers in the first show. <laughs> um, and we sort of, yeah, we went on to uh, develop our own sort of style after that. Um, and then, yeah, I ended up joining Akron, sort of, which was pre-Abremalon um, yep. in 1989. And after a few years, when we became Bremlin, I think it was about 94, Rob was our full-time sound guy live sound guy at the time and then after we recorded the um or during or was recording the self-titled album rob ended up joining as second guitar mm-hmm. so like he's a, he was a drummer in in conqueror then a guitarist again when we were in a Bremlin in 95 and then he was with us till about 98 and the band sort of we disbanded a little bit had some time off and then simon and i got back together to do dead speak and then We released that in 2000 and then we sort of had another couple of years of touring that album. So Rob's been there for a long, long time, you know, and and Rob learning the the bass lines. um, Some of the stuff we've nut out together, basically Rob's got an amazing brain when it comes to writing that sort of stuff. He knows Uh that the bass is a separate instrument and doesn't have to follow the guitars and it does its own thing. So I pretty much just sent him the clicks as well. Uh, anything he couldn't work out by listening to, I'd he'd say, "Come on, I need a video on that. I can't quite work out what you're doing there." I'll send yes. him a video. He'll nut that out, and then he'll send me a recording back and say, "What do you think of that?" You know, and every time he's just he's done something way better than I expected, and I think it works pretty well. Yeah, he's he's on point there in the middle eight, or I
0: call it the middle eight. You know, after about the third minute mark, they're a full Gore haul because he's yeah. keeping up with Dave
1: Haley right on. I can hear that going. <laughs> You know, and um, that's not easy. The drums. He's he's all about. The bass player should lock in with a drummer. That's where they should be. You know. Yeah, absolutely. He's doing that really
0: well, and that's yeah. hard, mate, for a death metal drummer. I mean, it's that's my only criticism of Alex Webster. Who I think is a genius on the bass guitar. Yeah. Sometimes I think he's doing things that sort of detract from what the rhythm should necessarily be and do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because he's, he's he's busy, but sometimes I look, I listen to it, and go, well, the guitar's already doing that. So yeah. It's. I mean, it's hard with that band because everything's tuned to you know. Like yeah. low A sharp or something like that, isn't yeah. it?
1: <laughs> what, what are you guys tuned to, too, by the way? B standard. We've been B since the first demo I think we did in 1990. We're in E. And after that, it was like, yeah, nah, straight down to B. And that was all because of Carcass. We sort of uh, – I started learning, I think um, – we were doing Genital Grinder or Genital Grinder 2 as a, uh, as a cover. Hmm. And I had to tune down to B to learn it. And um, – I just thought, wow! I really like the way this is. This is the right place for death metal to be, you know. be standard, and I've I've tuned to it ever since. Yeah. And you use I'm
0: just going by some of the photos on your Facebook page. Is that a, you've got BC Rich and a Jackson?
1: So are they the two main? I use Jackson exclusively at the moment. I was using BC Rich for a while, but um, yeah, no, no, Jackson all the way. They are. Uh, yeah, and Jackson V's all the way. I must say too. Yeah, and Matt's nice. the same. Yeah. Very we nice. love our V's. <laughs> okay. Do you have trouble setting
0: them up at all? Like, did it take you like a six months or so to sort of figure out to get the optimal sound out of it, or was it just right off no. the rack it worked?
1: No, no. Look I've, been, look, I've been playing around with it for a while. Um, it started sort of – I used to use a Ibanez Pro Line Series V, which was like an 85 model one back in the day, and all my um, issues, I changed that from a standard trim to a Floyd Rose trim, and then – Uh, string gauges, tuning to B, I had to use heavier string gauges. So all that stuff, I got nutted nutted that out when I used to play that Ibanez guitar. So then by the time I got my first Jackson Rhodes V, which would have been around about 95, 96, um, I sort of, I had my string gauge already sorted out, sort of like 13 to 52s. Nice. um, And, yeah, I knew how to set my tremolo so that it was completely level and wouldn't go out of tune it's all about balancing yeah. your Floyd Rose and yes ever since then because I've pretty much used the same sort of setup always had Floyd Rose tremolos and always use a 25.5 scale neck same string gauges um, once you once you've done it once or once you're used to setting them up it just that's uh, really easy oh, and I think that they never go out of tune once you you know once you set them up right
0: Oh, you know what you're doing. That's all you know. So, you know, hey, is there is there a lot of difference between? I mean, you play with bass, probably the two premier extreme metal drummers in the country, being yeah. uh, Matt Sanders, aka Skits and Dave. What are what are the principal differences
1: between the two? Um, Sanders is an absolute maniac. Literally, I mean, I love that guy so much, but he is a loose cannon. And that's the only difference, um, whereas Dave, you don't ever have to turn around to see that Dave's in the right spot. If, if he starts at a tempo, that whole song's the right tempo. Um, skits, he'd be um, a little bit up and down back in the old days. You know, he'd, uh, he'd race a bit depending on his mood, depending on his, his personal energy. Stuff could be way faster than you expected. Um, stuff could uh, pull back a little bit. And it was just you'd always be sort of over your shoulder. You know? And I don't want to diss him in any, any way, shape or form at all. Mm he 's an absolute god of drumming, especially for australian death metal hmm. but um the differences between him and Dave Haley is that um, Dave is just always perfect i can't i can 't say that enough he' is amazing hmm. Mm. Yeah,
0: as a, as a, I mean, I'm a guitarist too, but principally I'm a bassist. I, I couldn't, I reckon it'd be a nightmare to play with uh, Sanders, to be honest with you. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't, I would I used to be a fan of, well, still am, Damaged, of course. And yeah. um, listening to that shit and that hyper, you know, the, all the pick stuff that they were doing, it's a fully distorted, it's like plutonium heavy. But it's yeah. like, Jesus Christ, I can't lock into the groove anywhere. And for me, as a bassist, I have to be able to do, I have to lean back into it. You yeah, know, yeah. Sort of feel the groove and just sort of feel it flow through me a little bit. That's that's consequently why I've never, even though I'm a massive fan of metal, I've never played in a metal band. Yeah. Because I just I find that a lot of the drummers, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You've probably yeah. played with a bunch of them yourself. They just have no feel. They might have technique, yeah. but they got no feel. And you're like, Jesus, I can't feel this right now. But but Matt Sanders would have to be the one example where I listen to it and go. I have no idea what he is doing and where I can latch onto that. So it must have been bloody hard for your bassist. Did you Do you have a bassist in the Berserker or was that a guitar-only
1: band? Oh, in the Berserker, um, that was um, myself, Damian Palmer, who I think he was playing with the Version's Crown for a while or if he might still be there, I'm not sure. Um, he was also in another band called Widow of the Sea. He was a bass player, but he was a guitarist in those bands or in Widow of the Sea anyway. Um, and the drummer was Todd Hanson back then, who's uh, the King Parrot drummer now. Oh, that's so, right, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. But uh, Matt Skitz actually played for us for in a Bremelin from around about, I think it was probably for the whole year of the late ninety seven to sort of early ninety nine. Is that right? I thought Damage had an album out
0: back then. So he was doing both, was he? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Busy. Yeah. Yeah. Got gotcha. you. And what what are your thoughts now when you look back? Because I think those those two EPs that you released. Um, Deprived uh, of afterlife I think it was one and transgression from Akron oh, Akron sorry yeah um what are your thoughts on them now because they for me they're pretty bloody seminal in terms of the growth of Australian death metal Yeah well I
1: mean like um the deprived of afterlife one that was um that was really like our first release even though that was under Akron um that was when I really sort of controlled the writing and all that sort of stuff then so um Hmm. <clears throat> it came down to I had more control over what we sounded like um, what, what the songs did raw the production and all that Previous to that we did a demo But I'd only joined Arpron I think two weeks before that demo was recorded And I just wrote one song for that And then, and then played the other three songs That the other guys had already had together hmm. And after that like, I, I'm certainly not proud of that demo But it is what it is You know? We did it to sort of start it all off but, um, yeah, the Deprived of Afterlife thing, that was, I think, yeah, that was the true start of a Bremlin, okay. even though it was Arcon under there. And then with Transgressions, so it was the same thing, um, pretty much the same. I think it was the same members for the whole thing. And then, uh, I don't actually know, we changed guitarists. We, we had David Abbott in the first recording and we had uh, Mark Shaliga-Shilby, who was a bass player and singer for Necrotomy. He was playing guitar on the Transgression from Mark on AP. And um, also we had and Harriet on drums, who is another absolutely amazing drummer. We were so lucky to get him at the time because he lifted us to the next level even back then. Wow, okay. Yeah,
0: what's he doing these days? Because well, that's a long time ago now.
1: Yeah, um, I last I heard he was teaching English in Japan, I think. <laughs> but um <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a clear link between the two <laughs> exactly like that. he was a drum teacher through the 90s and he worked at drummer's paradise mm-hmm. he was all things drums he yeah. went on to play in blood duster as well he did that straight out of northcote album mm-hmm. with them um and he had another band called fracture he was in that mab- through the 90s i think you and harry was the ultimate australian death metal drummer okay there you, there know you know. go yeah uh, you go. so we there were go. lucky to have him yeah yeah, gotcha. And, and what are your feelings now
0: about the, um, the self-titled album in 1995? Because that's, that's really the album that I think globally that could have done it. That's, that was the one album where I thought, oh, you guys are going to blow up now. I'll just see you guys without the gates or something like that, touring around Europe or something. Yeah. But w- was, was there high hopes for you in that regard like that?
1: Well, we never really had any expectations, not, not even for anything we did. It was sort of like, um, finally, we get a chance. We've got a record label. Uh, we can actually do a full-length album. Um, we tried a a new guy who had never done any metal before, um, which was, um, Adam from Toyland Studio. He's still doing it now. He's doing some amazing work and he's done a hell of a lot of awesome albums over the last 30 years since, or 25 years since he did us, but we were his first Uh ever metal band. Um, yeah, we had no idea what we were going to do. All we knew is that we had a heap of songs. And we wanted to get them out there in a, on a full-length album. And it's um, sold really well. Like, we weren't expecting it. Um, so, yeah, the, the response to it was amazing. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it holds up to this day. Um, and you can't say that about a lot of the, I've got to be frank, a lot of the Aussie stuff from back in those days. I won't mention any bands. I'll tell you off here. But, um, yeah. yeah, a lot of the stuff. It sounds it, it was okay for the time, but it just doesn't hold up to this day. Mortality and Cryogenic and those sort of bands, you know, yeah. uh, who I loved back in the day, but I can't listen to that shit now. It just seems yeah. too period-specific.
1: Yeah, right, yeah. you
0: know what yeah. I'm saying. Um, but oh, I guess it's not, fuck, God, if, you know, we do these things, I'll put it out there, God, if, <laughs> the guys can <laughs> only contact me and say, I disagree with what you've said, but it's I'm dramatic. sure they won't, you know. <laughs> yeah, I used to love watching those guys, actually, when they came, when they toured and stuff. You know, Misery was another great band. Did you do a... Absolutely
1: love Misery, yeah. Big, big fan, yeah.
0: Yeah. was it, Do you find that, I mean, you've been doing this as long as anybody, do you think yesterday was better than today insofar as do you think there was more of a camaraderie back in the day compared to now or is it same, same?
1: Dude, it was such a small scene back in the day. Like There was, there was like 10 bands in Australia, you know? Um It pretty much felt like there was only ten bands in Australia, and we were always playing together all the time. If we went into state, it would be like we went to Canberra, it was with Alchemist. If we went to Brisbane, it was misery. Um, You know, um, it was was that, that simple. And now there are a million freaking bands, and like I meet a lot of guys, I see Grouse bands that we play with. But there are so many, I can't remember who's who from which band, you know, it's, yeah. and I, I feel like an absolute arsehole if I don't remember a face to a band and stuff like that, and especially with social media now, you chat to people here, there, and everywhere, and I, I can't always remember who's in what band and who does what when you're in mid-conversation, and I just hope I never put my foot in my mouth and say the wrong thing. <laughs> Especially,
0: you do that thing where you have a couple of bevies and you're enjoying yourself, and some someone mentions something else, and you start talking about it, and then you work out sometime later that person was associated with that band you were talking about. and You're like,
1: going, "Fuck!" I really hope I haven't done that, but you know, I wouldn't put it past my big feet and my big mouth. Yeah, I haven't done it. I don't think I've done it either, mate. But you know
0: how it is, mate. We all have a few bevies, and then you know there is truth in wine, as the Romans say. And uh, you Ooh, know, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing for me, mate, is doing this. There are some bands
1: who I I don't like at all, but as people, they're awesome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you you find that as well? Yeah, man. Look, there are some people who I think are the most amazing human beings, but their music just just doesn't do anything for me, you know. I can't say that it sucks because I don't like that kind of music or that it just doesn't appeal to me. It doesn't mean that it's shit. It just means that I don't like it, you know. Mm. But, God, I don't want to ever bag them. I don't want to bag people. You know, because, I mean, people, you can bag me, I don't care. <laughs> you know? My music makes me happy and it's just, it's overwhelming to know that other people think that it's good too, you know. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. just, yeah, there's no ego with me at all with my music, you know. Well, at least I don't think there is. There probably is. If someone says something shit about it, <laughs> maybe there is. <laughs> but at the moment, certainly not, no. I'm
0: gonna, I've am going i got an idea and I'm going to run, run it by you. Um, As I say, you've been around as long as anybody, but I I don't feel like, I know there's some people that have tried to do it, but uh, again, at the risk of throwing somebody under the bus, and I don't think I'm doing that with this statement, but I I truly don't feel like anybody's approached it with any academic rigour to capture the history of Australian extreme metal, which is a very important scene globally, like sadistic execution, for example, influenced the entire Norwegian and Swedish black metal movement. Yeah, yeah, crazy, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and this is a band from Ashfield or something in Sydney. Yeah, <laughs> you know, doing what they're doing. I met uh, what's the uh, Dave Slave? Yeah, the um, the bassist. Just accidentally just bumped into him at a gig down in Sydney when I was down there a year ago or so. Nice, nice guy, mate. Yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty sort of out there. I think it's probably fair to say, but a lovely yeah. guy nonetheless. You know, but yeah. the the point is, is that there's a story to tell here. Yeah, you, is it? Would you be keen to be involved in a project like that?
1: Yeah, definitely. It's just it's it's trying to fill in those blank spots though, because as time goes on, um, I I think memories change. You know, like I wish I could be so precise about certain things when people ask me questions about what happened back in the in the late '80s with this, that, and the other. And I I I feel like I'd be letting us down if I said the wrong thing. I'd be I'd be letting the whole scene down. But it's you can't really help where your memory goes. Maybe I've just got early onset dementia. I'm not sure. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well, I think, you know, when I, when I was thinking of, like, people whose voices were important, but yours is one of them. And, of course, well, this is the first time we've met, but because of yeah. your output, I'm talking about, you know, oh, you're, you're an easy bloke to talk to, clearly, and now, and the music that you've released is really integral to the growth of Australian extreme metal in that people have listened to you back in the day and made decisions to pick up an instrument or to form bands. Yeah. Okay, now I don't know that. I I haven't done any primary research to prove that, but I can almost guarantee that that would be the case. So so as important as what, say, the Armoured Angels and the Bremlins are art of the yeah. Australian scene but I just I think there's a couple of YouTube videos out there that have been relatively, yeah they're roughly put together if you know what I'm saying, the audio goes up and down and I think people have sort of contacted people on the basis of who they know as opposed to who has the story to tell so something that I'm looking at doing so is, I, I don't know when I'll get the time to do it but it's certainly something that just, it'd be almost like a book yeah. but it'd, be you, it'd be your story and how your story relates to the extra, Australian extreme metal scene yeah, I'd love to be a part of that, man. Yeah. All right. Well, just keep it in your back pocket for now, because I'm, I'm writing, writing, and I'm just in the genesis of writing another book for a promoter up here on the Sunshine Coast. But my big thing, mate, is, and I'm sure you can uh, <laughs> echo these sentiments here. I, I won't do it self-published. It's just way too hard. Yeah, I want of to course. To get a publisher on board.
1: Yeah, yeah. You look, you've only got such a small, a uh, potential audience when you self-publish. It's the same with albums, you know. Like um, we've had to release Never Enough Snuff ourselves because we gave the majors a, a go at it and they were like with the actual original artwork that we that that we that we used, they wouldn't touch it because it's too un-PC and they were too scared that it's, it's it's going to be a waste of money, it's going to get pulled off the shelves. So we just – it literally was sitting there for about four months and people were saying, if you use a different artwork, we'll, we'll, we'll use we'll do it. And we just weren't going to compromise with that. You know, it was something that Simon especially – has um, put so much work into
0: hmm.
1: with his, the concept behind it and the concept works with the entire album. And we look at it as an entire package, you know. It is lyrics, it is art, it is the music as well. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and we just thought, yeah, we're not going to compromise. We're going to do it ourselves and see how it goes. And as so far, it's, it's only been released for like nearly three weeks. Hmm. We've, we've literally sold out of our complete first pressing of the CD, you know, in three weeks. So we need to go again. Um, yeah, now, if, if we do that through a label, I mean, w- literally, we'd probably get .003 cents off every single sale anyway, <laughs> so that would yeah. screw you in the first place, but at least we've got full control over it, we know where it's going, we just, we do need someone to pick us up to help with overseas distribution, because with this, the way things are with this COVID nonsense, um, it's just ridiculous, the postage prices are insane, yeah. and and, and, it's, and we're up against a brick wall with it. So we've, we've got someone interested for Europe. We're still looking at someone for um, for the US. But um, other than that, I would say to anybody, don't think you have to go with a major label to try and bring out a successful album. You can do it yourself. We've got all the, all the tools with the internet to do it. But again, as you're saying with your book, if you're going to publish it that way, You've just, you haven't, I, I don't know, you're in the music industry, you know, you're in the mute with, with um, your music journalism. Hmm. I don't know, with, with your journalism side of things, do you know, is there another way that you can get stuff published and get it out to the people that are going to see it and the people that are going to read it? It's, it's all about
0: how do yeah. you push it? How do you do it? I mean, yeah. Look, geez, it's it's a great question because I think if I had the answer, you know what, I'd bottle it and sell it myself at you know at yeah. a rate of ten percent managerial fee or whatever. I got you know, it's 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 so ridiculous at the moment just to echo your points about there being the volume of bands out there. Yeah. My great fear with an album like Never Enough Snuff is that it'll fall through the cracks. Yeah. And albums like yours,
1: to be frank with you, mate, in the last five years. Have fallen through the cracks. Yeah, look, it, it'll happen. I mean, look, our, our YouTube views aren't that aren't up very high. When you yeah. see some stuff that comes out within five minutes because it's released through a label, it's got twenty thousand, thirty thousand views in the first couple of days. Mm. You know, our stuff's been out you know a few weeks now, and we're lucky to get a, a couple of thousand views on things. You know, and it just it needs to be put in the right hands. It needs to be reviewed by sort of I don't know more mainstream media, I suppose. That's a really under- good point. Yeah. That's actually sorry, I just
0: sorry to interrupt you, but that's actually sure. the point, and one of the key things that I'm working in with my role. Well, I'm doing an, because I'm at uni. I'm doing an internship at News Limited. Okay, so yeah. I'm writing for the Gold Coast Bulletin, and look, I hope to get a job there full time afterwards. Yeah. That that'd be perfect. That's why I was mentioning the, the gig at Longreach or the role at Longreach yeah. earlier, just to secure employment long term. Um, but one of the one of the things that is missing is that heavy metal. Especially extreme metal is completely absent from the mainstream media's conscience. Yeah, yeah, it's gone. It's just not there. Yeah, Yeah, they don't exist, and that's the problem. And now, what I would, what my pitch is, eventually is to slowly start bringing that back in, like one album every two weeks, review it. So say, Mm. do you guys one week, and then if Carcass have got an album out, do that in two weeks' time. That sort of thing. Just bringing it back a little bit so as though it's demystified. And I think that's the key there because there's how many independent... I mean, I've got the A-list, I've got my own scars and guitars thing. There are thousands of us in Australia alone doing this sort of stuff, but with varying degrees of success, I think. And some some of the independent, the podcasters and stuff, it's not about professionalism, but sometimes I think they're doing things for the wrong reason. Like they're not doing it because they love music. They're using mm. it as a vehicle to support some other thing or what have you. And it's like, man, you're just diluting it. So yeah. I, think, I think you've got to sort of hyper-focus to your point, um, yeah. to that point, and like be very clear about if I'm a music journalist, I'm just going to effectively focus on a lot of the extreme stuff yeah, and, and bring that in. So I'll write about all sorts of other things. So I've interviewed a lady who turned 100. I interviewed a guy in Antarctica and crafted that into a story, did a story yeah. on the uh, com games, you know, all of that stuff. But then occasionally, bring an interview with you in. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's the thing. And have it on the pages. Just give us four pars, nothing. Fuck all, to <laughs> be honest with you. But you're yeah. still there. You know, you're still there. And I think that's the key, mate. And I actually, if I can move the needle, I think that's where it's going to be because, yeah. you know, all of us that, that, are, that are doing this micro blogging and Facebook stuff and all the rest of it, I don't think it's making a difference to be frank with you and I'm sorry, yeah. but that's just my honest
1: feel I don't know if that's correct, but that's my am feeling. Which is it's very hard to get the views and that's the thing, you know, it's like it's gotta be shared and, and it's like if if a lot of people get together and they make up these little private syndicates where everyone just jumps on everyone else's stuff and shares it and shares it and shares it, and shares it that's one way to push it out there. Hmm. You know? So it's one thing a lot of people should probably look at, is just okay, join together, get your friends together. Everyone like each other's shit and push it, you know. Mm. Whether you like it or not, just just work as as a community. And I suppose the metal community needs yeah. to do that. I've got intro.
0: I've got mixed feelings on that, mate. To be honest, yeah. with you. your, your your principle is spot on, and and it's it's the way things should be. But there's so much self interest with human beings. I'm not just talking about heavy metal. Well, yeah, I agree. Yeah, the fucking self interest is just ridiculous. You know, I've worked with musicians where I've got them gigs. And then, when I've gone to apply for paying gigs in the band, like I can, I'm not a dickhead, I can play. Oh, you can get the gig. It's like, and the, but then I find out afterwards that if they'd sponsored me into the band or what have you, that they wouldn't have even done auditions because I came recommended or what have you. The, you know what I'm saying? Like, and I'm not even yeah. saying that I deserve specifically to be there. I'm just saying, isn't that interesting? The brotherhood of reciprocity. Yeah. You know, and yeah, and exactly. you've probably seen it.
1: It's because not, every, not everyone. Not everyone's honest and true, and you know, not everyone. A lot yeah. of people they are just—they're after the, They're out for themselves. Unfortunately, it's. I think it's part of the human condition of a lot of people. Hmm. You know, no, we can't change that. In people, you just, no, you just hope no. to the best. You know, that that you do. I just, uh, you know, with a release
0: such as this, so I, I think you've been important to Australian heavy metal for for damn near thirty years. Think about that. Yeah. From thank you, you know, and. You get an album like this, which which I truly hope does achieve broad listenership, and you can go on tour and the like, but I also know the effort that it's going to take. Yeah. You guys can try as hard as you can, but to your exact point, you need that big push from behind, whether it's just someone to champion the band or something like that. But how do you do it? That's the million-dollar question. How do you do it?
1: Yeah, a lot of the time, you gotta, you got to try and pull in favors or friends that you've met along the way and who are in bigger bands they might be able to put you on a tour or something and get you seen more a lot of it comes down to stuff like that playing in front of bigger crowds um you know doing a lot of support acts you know take a lower pay rate and play some support acts so more people get to see you show them what you've got you know and i suppose that's that's probably in australia that's the way to do it um overseas it's probably the same you've you've got a tour if you don't tour and you're not pushing your product you're going to get forgotten about pretty quickly.
0: What, what do you got? You, you guys will obviously be coming up here once this post COVID thing has died oh, down. Yeah. So, can can you share? Is there been discussions with Dicey about who you might be teaming up with to do a, a tour?
1: Well, no, no idea as of yet. We we did want to do the we were going to do the Thrash uh, Blast Brian, nice. but um, our guitarist was going to the UK during that time, so we had to put out. We had to say we couldn't do that. And then, of course, with COVID, the whole thing's, you know, kaput anyway. Mm. But, um, look, King Parrot are a band we'd love to tour nationally with, definitely. They're really great guys, good mates. And um, I think it would be a great fun tour to do. Two different kinds of music, you know. I agree 100% on that point. I can't stand it when you've got three bands that sound virtually the same as each other. No, no, mix Um. it up. In the old days, even in the 80s, in the thrash bands and that, we're playing punk gigs in the early 90s with Archon and Bremlin. We, we, we're playing bands. I mean, we did shows with Spiderbait, um, you know. Nice. And, yeah. 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 And so it's like you just, just mix it up. You get different crowds. Different people see each kind of band, and they then they can make the choice whether they like it or not. But you pull bigger crowds. Wait, how, did, how did you go over with the Spiderbait fans? Do you remember? Well, they were sort of – they were pretty – Like this is like early 90s. So – they were still pretty punky, you know. They weren't so much, um, I don't know if you call them mainstream or whatever. Yeah, the Triple but, um, J
0: fans, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. But, no, it was it was a different time. People just loved getting out there and was having a fun time at a gig and everyone got into every band, you know. It was just easy.
0: Mm. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. Mate, I think I've taken up enough of your time. But, uh, <laughs> look, I, I've, I've enjoyed having this chat, mate, I, I, I've got to say. You know, um, it's so it's weird so- for me talking to a bloke whose music remember back when i was a kid you know (laughs) i mean i was when we were both young back then of course much younger than we are now to say the least but 25 i think it was 28 years ago or so i think oh see i went through i went through a sydney boarding school yeah and i uh i was the only one in the entire school into extreme metal dsi cannibal corpse you guys that'd make it (laughs) Well, I I got called all sorts of names. I wouldn't yeah. say I was bullied in, in a traditional sense, but you know, you end up sort of keeping your own council and your own company a lot. Yeah. Because I just didn't want to I love the music too much. But yeah. I remember just listening to you guys and you sort of form this view that you're living on a faraway castle somewhere. You know <laughs> <laughs> you know this unobtainable chat. musician, yeah,
1: <laughs> and here we are
0: having a chat, you know, so it's uh, it's been a good chat, brother. I appreciate it, and uh, i I remember I mean what I said, you know, every word about your contribution to extreme extreme metal. It's good to have people that are keeping the faith and contributing in in your way because I say it again, I've said it so many times, and I've written about it. I think one of the you know this 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 issue that we've got with youth and depression and all this sort of shit that's going on. Pick up a fucking instrument, listen yeah, to a guitarist yeah. like you, and mimic what you are doing. It will give you a sense of accomplishment. It will make you feel better, not just as a musician but as a person. And I firmly believe
1: it'll that it'll make you feel strong. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so well done, mate. I really, I truly hope that this album moves the needle for you. You know, Godspeed with yeah, everything. And, um, mate, if you're happy with everything, I'll just release it all as it is. Yeah, I'm cool. Yeah, definitely. No it was great to see you, man. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series, the Syndicates for the A List Online. My name's Andrew Mackay Smith. That interview subject is the guitarist from Melbourne-based Abremelin, Tim Aldridge. Thanks very much for listening.